Galaxy Forum. I'm your host, Melissa Kaplan, and we're here to explore the creativity happening in the LCC Galaxy, in our classrooms and on campus, and connecting the work of our stars with our community. Today we're talking about visual arts and arts education, and I'm delighted to welcome my guests, Susan McGinnis-Hardy and Barbara Whitney. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you for having us. We're delighted. Absolutely. Um, Before we get into our discussion, I want to share a little bit of background about each of you. Uh, Susan teaches foundational arts in LCC's art and design program. She's a professional artist and illustrator and has multiple clients as well as private commissions. She received her BFA from the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California, and her master's from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, with a focus on art and religion. She also served as their Director of Admissions and Recruitment for six years, taught online for the Art Institute of Pittsburgh, and has previously taught elementary school for 10 years. On her website, she shares, and I I love this, so I have to quote it, Mm -hmm. in her vocation as an artist and an art educator, Susan finds her mind, her hand, and her spirit at work together. Thanks, Susan. (laughs) Thank you. I love that. It is. It's wonderful. It really is. And and like Susan, Barb is a professional artist. Her non-objective work is rooted in her interest in emotions, perceptions, and the passage of time. She's executive director of the Lansing Art Gallery and Education Center. And I'm going to steal just a little bit from her gallery bio for a moment because it's. I think it's just so perfectly stated. Barb Whitney is a champion for access and equity in the arts engaging stakeholders regarding the arts and arts education locally, statewide, and nationally. Barb earned a BA in Art and Art History from Kalamazoo College and an MA in Arts Administration from the University of Michigan Flint with research and subsequent work on equity in arts education. Barb is on the faculty at Michigan State University with a residential college in the Arts and Humanities and the Arts and Cultural Management Program. So glad you're here, Barb. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. Welcome to you both. Um, this is, uh, with so much art on campus and, and you know, the abundance of it uh, really blooming in our community, um, I think it's a great time to be talking about the creative work that's happening in our classrooms and, and classrooms at, at MSU. And I want to start a little bit, uh, Susan, by talking about LCC's art and design program. I know we offer a number of degrees and certificates, like in graphic communication, web and graphic design, studio art and art foundation. And it's the common foundational courses that's your focus, correct? Correct, yes. So tell us a little bit about the art foundation that LCC students receive, whatever specialization they may ultimately choose. Correct. Um, no matter what degree program the student wants to enter, whether they want to transfer or do the foundation, or if they want to go and get certificates, all of the students have a certain set courses that they take, um, and that varies slightly with program. But the main course that all students have to take is um, what's called our design and communication. It is visual communications. And in another school, they may call it just basic design. So the students learn the principles and elements of design and how to apply those to any art piece um, that the students are doing, whether it is pure design, abstract work, figurative work, whether they want to go into animation or character design, um, 
etc. All of these principles and elements apply. Unity, emphasis, we have line shape, all those kind of color. basic color. And then we do have a separate course that the students take in color and design. And then we go into the other stu- course that all students take is basic design, which is, I mean, sorry, basic drawing. It's observational drawing. So in that course, the students are learning how to see because really drawing is about um, your perception and understanding what you see and being able to translate that to your, to what you want to do. Um, we start yeah. observation. Oh, sorry. Oh, I thought somebody said something. I was just emphasizing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm very excited. Okay. All right. I'm excited about the, yes. the principles and the elements and the basic drawing because I feel like that's such an important foundation for any kind of communication. Yes. But especially for visual arts students. Right, right. And so that... You know, that class, students come in at all levels. And that's what I tell my students when they come in. Don't feel intimidated that, you know, the person sitting next to you is so much better than you. So that's not the case. I think the students come in and they learn and they learn how to see and they learn how to draw. We also, you know, teach media in that class, mostly black and white um, media and then um, and no color actually in in drawing one. And then the other um basic course, I don't teach this course, but it's um, structural analysis, which is 3D design. So we're learning how to build things and and think and and actually make dimensionally three-dimensional objects. What might that be? Well, um, they're usually project-based, and so they learn how to, I don't teach the course, but they learn how to use, for example, wire and use that to create something three-dimensionally goodness, because I don't teach the class. I don't have the curriculum. But that right gives hand, me an but, idea. Yeah. 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 But any, you know, it's, it's, it's sculptural, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. not sculpture in the sense of clay so much as object making and often using found objects as well. So I'm curious, do students come in, you know, teaching a foundation with a foundation course, not necess- they may not necessarily be majors. And when you talk about teaching students to see I mean, we think of that as something that's just so fundamental. You kind of take it for granted. You don't think, oh, I need an art class in order to see. And Barb, I'm thinking about a conversation we had recently in which you shared that it wasn't until you took some drawing and art class that the world opened up for you in a totally different way and you had to pursue art. And yeah. can you talk a little bit about that, Barb? And then, Susan, I'm interested, is that an experience you have with, with some of our students too? Oh, okay. Yes, the basic drawing class I took at Kalamazoo College through Tom Rice completely transformed my life. It helped me to know this was the career path I wanted to follow. And because luckily I also surprisingly excelled at it, but hadn't had any coursework and really in the visual art to that point, I didn't know that. Um, And I had been seeking a potential career in the performing arts and took basic drawing as a theater credit, actually. (laughs) So I loved it and uh, was mesmerized and wanted to take every single class I could and pursue at whatever length, at whatever cost, every opportunity to make and to eventually to teach as well. What a thrilling experience. Yeah, Yeah. Susan, do you see that discovery uh, among some of your students? Uh, I think, you know, it depends... You know, a lot of students are coming right out of high school, and some of them have had a background in in art and others not so much, or some have just developed on their own as well. 
And so there is that, I think they enjoy what they're doing when they're in the classroom. And it's a studio class, so we're, we're drawing in the classroom. The other class that I do teach that kind of develops drawing too, and it takes the student from drawing one, which is observational, to more imaginative drawing. And imaginative in the sense it has two parts to it, really. One is very convergent, and the other one's very divergent. Hmm. But um, we, they learn perspective in the class. So it's not observational drawing, but they learn uh, linear perspective, which is very almost mathematical sometimes. But then I have them all do a sketchbook on a theme. That's what we were working on today, that they just they choose this theme. And it has to be broad enough so they can go in a lot of different directions with it. And then I say, okay, think back to your passion. Why did you come to begin with? What started you into art? What took you down this path? And I say, connect to that. And I have them look at many, many themes because the New York City sketchbook project is where I got the idea. It's been around for years. And so they look at themes and they try to decide which direction they want to go. And with that, it's called, I. it's really idea generating, you know, mm-hmm. because, you know, I think there's like three things that I think are really important for a foundation is drawing skills, design skills, as you said, Barb, and then concept development. And you really need all three to be a strong artist, I believe. And so those foundation courses are getting that. But it was interesting because when um, we went ORT for a few semesters, my classes are now face-to-face. And ORT is online real-time for Listeners who may not know, that means yes. that you have both an online component to a course as well as a virtually delivered, like whether it's through Zoom or WebEx piece where the, the instructor, the faculty member, and the students all meet that way, but right. not in person, not in right. the classroom. Okay, right. go ahead, Susan. So the sketchbook project took off that semester, and I was thinking, why did this happen? Because they're all sitting at home. Wow. You know, and they, you know, it was the beginning. It was March and through the summer and the fall. The ideas that were developed and what I really in, talk to my students now about is like, just really look at your passion. What drives you as an artist? What brought you to this point? And try to connect that because this sketchbook project is all yours. And at the end, they have a project on a theme. And that's separate from the very linear perspective that we're doing in class as well. And then I teach figure, so figure drawing. That's that's wonderful to encourage them to connect that with their passion because, you know, I, knowing both of you and knowing how passionate you are as artists and as as educators, it can be lost along the way sometimes mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. the struggle. I mean, and one would hope that whatever career path anybody chooses, that there's passion for that. But when you think about the arts, you also I think of passion as being you know part of what gets you through times that uh, where you may not be necessarily working in the arts, but you still have that that passion for it. Um, Barbara, I want to ask you for a minute, turn to, to what you teach at uh, Michigan State University in the arts. I know it's, it's on the organizational administration side. Tell us a little bit about that, please. Yes, I teach in the Arts and Cultural Management and Museum Studies Program, and so much of what we were already discussing today relates to what I do in the classroom there as well. It's a, currently I'm teaching an advocacy and policy class. And it, similarly, I talk with students about rediscovering their why and mm-hmm. looking at critical moments in their life where they felt the most themselves or the most inspired. 
to help them tell their advocacy story as nonprofit arts and cultural administrators, because we really do have to tell our stories in order to engage people in our work, whether that's legislators <laughs> or whether that it could be municipal leaders, but it also could just be friends and family, people who we want to introduce to the conceptual framework of why the arts matters or why a museum is a safe space for you and your family. So it ranges quite a bit in terms of where students come from, but ultimately the advocacy story is around your passion and helping people understand what has brought you to that space as well. I was also thinking while we were talking about that skills building piece around the visual arts Mm -hmm. and in the arts, I think in general, in any given discipline, there is a skills building element of that work, just like there is in communications. So when we learn to make letters as children, as very young children, hopefully, right? And then to read and to write, we're building our skills. And then if we look into creative wordplay or poetry or otherwise thinking about the literary arts as a creative outlet for self-exploration and for innovation, we can look at any of our arts disciplines in a similar way as well. Absolutely. That is a, that's a great point. Yes. I like the, the idea of the why. I think that's really important and getting, um, but then the skills are necessary. I mean, you really have to have the skills, um, the skill base as well. So balance is really mm-hmm. needed. And that's part of why it's so important, I think, to fight for the arts in children's lives. Let's talk a little bit about your research that you actually started when you were working on your master's degree. Uh, Your thesis was about equity in arts education, and you did work with the American for the Arts organization. And I know you continue to advocate. And so I'm interested, you know, want to learn a little bit about that research and then how that continues to play out for you. Oh, thank you for the opportunity to share about about that, the research warrants conversation, for sure, in terms of why the arts matters in children's lives. And when I went back to school as a non-traditional learner (laughs) and decided to get my master's in my late 30s and early 40s. Yay. uh, (laughs) Thank you. So did I. (laughs) I just accepted the, um, the position of executive director for the gallery at the same time as returning to graduate school. So Kudos and thanks to my board of directors for taking that big leap with me, which ended up catapulting us to a national stage in terms of some of our work. Fantastic. But the Americans for the Arts project was related to isolating and creating a gap analysis around arts education. So seeking conversations from stakeholders from all across the country, arts education leaders in every state in D.C., and hearing the successes and the barriers to success for children in their states. So while we shared the information in aggregate, I would say I had the distinct pleasure of meeting colleagues in arts education from across the country and having sometimes hour-long interviews with them. I had, it was just an absolute pleasure and honor to have their confidence and to learn about the barriers as well as the successes. So we learned that advocacy efforts really do work. 
and that when we tell stories of student success in the arts, it makes a difference in people believing in the value. It seems like maybe a no-brainer, <laughs> but um, we heard it over and over in different interviews that telling those stories is critical for getting funding in states for arts education, in policy, in um, helping students get access K-12 to the arts, and just foundational to the way children learn. It's a way that we can think holistically and help them best be themselves in the classroom or now virtually as well. So how is this work continuing? How is it uh, being used? Because I it, it's never ending. If you stop talking and stop telling those stories, somebody else steps in with their stories and, and you know, is angling for that fund. I mean, angling is probably the wrong word, but, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of competition and there's a lot of essential needs. And uh, mm-hmm. how, how is this continuing? It's a complex system at the legislative level and more complex than I ever realized. You know, we all watch that when a bill becomes to a, uh, becomes a law video. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you were little. <laughs> yes. Was that oh. from it's Schoolhouse cool. Rock? Rock? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I almost could sing it, but I'm not yes. going to. <laughs> because the music helps you remember. Yeah, right? that's true. That's true. So, so at, I, you know, it looks like in some cases the real hard advocacy at the Capitol on the Hill. We have our Americans the Arts leading that charge at a national level. Statewide, we work with the Cultural Advocacy Network, and I consult with the Michigan Arts Education Instruction Assessment Group as well to help kids get access to the arts in schools and to help teachers have the resources they need to implement that as well. And what you said about stories is so absolutely powerful because we can talk in generalities and we can talk about processes, but until you show what this means to an individual and how it's changed their life. Susan, I'm wondering, I know you taught elementary school for 10 years. You taught mm-hmm. on in South Dakota on an Indian reservation, yes. um, and you taught in Colorado as well in a, was that a Air Force school? The Air I Force think. Academy, it was just the, it was the public school yeah. for that area of Colorado Springs. How were the arts handled for those students? Were they available? Did you, you know, what was your experience with those young children? Mm-hmm. Well, I can speak mostly from the reservation because I was seven years there and I, you know, I had, I was very young and I had never been west of Chicago. So I went out there and I said, well, I can do anything for a year. I just, the culture is so beautiful and there are so many tragic things about things out there as well. But what I found is, you know, I had learned all the things about being a teacher. It was my first year teaching. But I kind of threw a lot of things out the window because the learning, the the way that students learn, the learning styles, the um, strengths that they had were much more visual and auditory. And I felt like the more I could integrate the arts and activities that involved, you know, the arts into the classroom, the more engaged they were and the more they were able to. I did a project where they they interviewed people all over the town and they wrote a history of their town talking to the different people and then they illustrated that and yeah I just that's why I that's why I felt like I can't just teach by the book here this I have to like shift gears and my artistic side creative side had to come out because that's how I was going to reach those kids 
and beautiful, beautiful work that they could do, the visuals. And I, I took classes in Lakota arts and culture and tried to learn what it was like there, but very, very artistically talented on the reservation. That's a powerful story. That's a powerful example, uh, Barb, of what you're you're talking about as well. And I know you and, and the organizations, Barb, that you're working with are, are working at a policy level. Do you see change? Do you see the impact of this in, for example, our local Lansing, greater Lansing area schools? Do you see a, a change toward arts integration and arts education? I know for a while there it was, I mean, a lot of things were cut and Mm -hmm. the arts were largely cut. Has that improved? Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of opportunity there in the local schools and to look at statewide, like you said, policy and practice, examining where we can make a difference from a legislative standpoint. And then also, you know, working with a local community agency with Lansing Art Gallery and Education Center, we see a lot of opportunity to work with the schools and teaching artists to um, help with needs for supplies and eventually when it's safe again, to bring children into our facility as a their space as a community art and cultural institution so that they have that resonant moment where they feel it's for them and they share that with their network as well. When we used to bring children in for the early start, was they called it late start Wednesdays, but it was early start for us. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we had early start Wednesdays at the gallery. And those children from the district, they absolutely loved those moments. And they became part of our agency in an entirely different way, where toward the end, when they had their art show, they were running in, literally, although <laughs> yes, we don't that's promote wonderful. that. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the running part we don't promote, but the um, the enthusiasm we do, and they would say to their families, this is my show, Aww. this is my art, oh, this nice. is my stage. Um, and so mm-hmm. they felt like they had about their own work, and they related in the same way to our professional artists and the artwork we were showcasing there as well. So that's an ideal situation where we felt like we were really making a difference. What a wonderful thing that's been created. I know Lansing Art Gallery has, uh, an education center has has really blossomed with that, uh, the expansion of the education programming. And to hear about that, that's just, that's so moving. I want to circle back to our students. I mean, not only our students at Lansing Community College, but students in general. But yeah, students who are in a two-year program, how both in general, what kind of opportunities are there when they they complete their work here? But how might they get involved in this kind of arts education, advocacy, whether it's hands-on in in a facility such as yours, Barb, or are there other opportunities? Because I'm thinking that could be a real viable path or something to really enrich them while they're they're here at LCC. Well, certainly. Yeah. Oops, sorry. Our (laughs) programs are... Go ahead. um, Yep, that's fine. Um, Our programs are, some of the students are planning to transfer and to go to four-year schools. Others are coming out and they're trained as graphic designers and that's what they are finding work in um, locally. Some want to freelance. You know, a few of our students come and they do this as a, not a minor because we don't have minors, but to just kind of for their own personal enrichment as well. I do teach another class every other spring called Art for the Elementary School Teacher. And I really, really try to enforce to these 
up-and-coming teachers who are finding all of the things and requirements that they need to bring into the classroom, you know, from the various uh, disciplines to integrate the arts into everything they do. And there's a way to do that. So I structure that class so that they do lesson plans and, and do projects that could be incorporated into social studies or to science or even math, um, literature, of course, very easily incorporated. But my point is that it doesn't have to be left for the art classroom. Right. And you're getting skills here because I try to teach them the basics, you know, the similar things in a different level and, and to open their minds because they're the teachers, the future teachers, you know, to what the art world is. Because some of them are very, they don't have that much experience with art world. So. Yes, I, so essential to, and this is what you were talking about too, Barb, to the value of the arts for teachers, for, for people in, in any field to, to look at it not as, uh, not only as something that you do on the weekends or you buy a ticket to once in a while and see a show, mm-hmm. but that there's, you know, this is something that enables people to really critically engage with society and make a difference in their community that, that it, it, you know, yeah, it has an economic development impact as well, but that it's for just the ability to live a good life where you're able to express Mm -hmm. and communicate with others. I think that's so valuable to integrate that, you know, we're just going to have a couple more minutes and I, I want to, Barb, I want to ask you about the Lansing Art Gallery and, and let you talk for a minute about some of the changes that are happening, particularly in, in location this mm-hmm. year and what that means for the gallery and the education center. Yeah, we've moved. It's um, happened. We are in the Knapp building. We're on the corner of Washington and Washtenaw, right downtown in the heart of the city. So we're just similarly a couple of blocks from the Capitol and a couple of blocks from Lansing Community College and the students there. Some of the ways we've seen students engage in the past is they come in as special assignments for classes and are essentially doing a scavenger hunt of sorts, I think. So that's always really fun. Sometimes we talk with student reporters as well around the work that we do. And sometimes we have interns from Lansing Community College as part of our work. So those are some of the ways we've seen students engage in the past. But I think it's maybe most important to think about that we're free and open to the public and we welcome anyone anytime from a community-based standpoint you know we're a community agency we we are responsible to our community um and so we are always making that call like please come visit enjoy the art make art and be part of our organization in whatever way feels right for you we're lucky to have the Lansing Art Gallery and Education Center in, in our community. Yeah, and so close. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I think we could keep talking. I know I would love to hear about your individual artwork, but I think we're going to have to have another conversation because we are <laughs> out of time. This has been a great discussion. Thank you, Susan and Barb. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for You're welcome. Us. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for listening. If you'd like to connect with Susan and Barb, visit our LCC Connect website at lccconnect.org. You'll also find past episodes of this show and other LCC Connect programming that you may listen to on demand. Special thanks to our producer today, Dedalian Lowry. 
and to Andy Callis for composing our theme music. I'm Melissa Kaplan, and this is Galaxy Forum on LCC Connect. of Lansing Community College. Visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Lansing Community College is proud to present We're Better Than That, an anti-bigotry campaign. Embracing diversity is a continuing process, one that requires honesty, cooperation, and meaningful conversations. At Lansing Community College, we understand our journey towards inclusion and equity begins with an examination of how we relate to one another and a pledge to engage in the work necessary for meaningful progress to facilitate conversations and initiatives that will combat racism and hate speech in our college community. The Office of Diversity and Inclusion has partnered with the Office of Police and Public Safety to create We're Better Than That a comprehensive campaign to combat institutional bias and racism. To find out more about We're Better Than That, visit lcc.edu. Today in school, I learned a lot. In chemistry, I learned that no one likes me. In English, I learned that I'm disgusting. And in physics, I learned that I'm a loser. Today in school, I learned that I'm ugly and useless. And in gym, I learned that I'm pathetic and a joke. In history, I learned that I'm trapped. Today in school, I learned that I have no friends. In English, I learned that I make people sick. And at lunch, I learned that I sit on my own because I smell. In chemistry, I learned that no one likes In biology, I learned that I'm fat and stupid. And in math, I learned that I'm trash. The only thing I didn't learn in school today... The only thing I didn't learn today... The only thing I didn't learn... It's why no one ever helps. Kids witness bullying every day. They want to help, but they don't know how. Teach them how to stop bullying and be more than a bystander at stopbullying.gov. A message from the Ad Council. Lansing Community College welcomes transfer students. Transfer students may apply transfer credits towards their LCC degree, certificate, or transfer program. Learn more at lcc.edu slash belong. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. This is Teachable Moment, the show where we get to know the people that make LCC go. I'm Steve Robinson, president of Lansing Community College, and I go one-on-one with a member of our campus community to learn about a key concept or idea from their area of expertise. It's a show about what makes LCC great, the fantastic people with inspiring ideas who change lives every day with their incredible work. My guest today is Jeff Janowick, a history professor here at the college. He's here to talk about a great concept called culture of care. He's going to tell me more about what that means and why it's so important, especially now. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Steve. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to have you. And uh, before we talk about culture of care and your teachable moment, I would like to hear a little bit about you. You are a full-time history professor here at LCC. How long have you been here at the college? I've been at LCC for 22 years, if you can believe it. I can believe it. 
22. That is a good run. I, I, I was at a, my two colleges ago for 23 years. So it's really cool to have longevity. You've been here through a lot of changes at LCC. There's been a lot that's happened at LCC in the time I've been here. But, there, but some things are the same. And I think one of those is our commitment to our students. And that's, for me, that's what keeps me here. And that's what keeps me energized and engaged. And I love it. So. Well, that's what I've noticed about you in the time that I've been here, and that's true. Uh, you know, a lot of things change at community colleges, but I think that common thread that goes through the decades is our commitment to students. Tell me a little bit about the things you've done in history and academics here at the college. With a longevity of 22 years, you've probably been involved in a great deal of things here at the college. So... Yeah, history is a discipline that likes to be involved, and mm -hmm. we like to, we have a faculty that likes to be engaged. Yeah, and so when there's initiatives at the college, we often participate and join in because we think it's important, and we want to have input and and help shape how those things are, um, how those things go. And so I've been a part of any number, and as have the history faculty, we've been a part of any number of student success initiatives at right. the college. We've been part of Gateways to Completion. We've been part of uh, the OER project, Open right. Educational Resources. Uh -huh. uh, we just are, we've actually been part of the assessment initiatives. We, we right. try to do lots of different things because we care about our students and we want to make sure that we are teaching the best that we're able to uh -huh. right. and that we're connecting into the larger mission of the college. Well, and, and I've noticed that here at LCC and other, and other community colleges, history, like my discipline of English, is a kind of a service-oriented discipline, right. right? So you have a lot of engagement on the part of faculty. And you are a former president of the Academic Senate, right? That's correct. Yes, I was, I was a member of the Academic Senate, and then I was the president for a couple of years and um, have stayed involved with the Senate um, as a way because, it, again, to keep teaching um, First and foremost in the mind, in my mind, but also you know throughout the institution. Right, and uh, you know you're probably thinking, and I think you're too young to be thinking like this. But with 22 years of experience, you're one of the more senior, seasoned faculty members, correct? Uh, I, I guess I am. Yeah, I, I remember when, I, to think that, when that dawned on me. I said, "Oh, I'm I." I remember at the beginning of my teaching career, looking up to all these folks who'd been here for a long time, and then I realized that one day. I'm I'm that I'm in that category. It's a weird thing, and uh, part of it is that history. Um, I I recognize that in history that's what happens, right? That that things change over time, your and discipline. your role changes yeah. over time. Yep. But it's weird to actually experience it sometimes, and to be a part of it, and to be an important, um, you know. Uh, ambassador, I suppose, of longevity, history, those kinds of things. Well, sure. thank you for all that you do in, in that regard. And, uh, but your, your observation about students and student success is a great pivot point to your teachable moment. You're going to talk to me about this um, emerging important um, idea of a culture of care. And so why don't I turn the floor over for you, to you for a minute and teach me what, what is meant by this phrase, culture of care, in the context of higher ed? So that's a, that's a complicated question, but in some ways it's also really simple. <laughs> and it's fundamentally the idea that our students are human beings <laughs> and that a little bit of kindness goes a long way in helping them to succeed. Mm -hmm. And that the culture of care is, as you said, it's 
I think there's a growing interest in this across higher ed and as a way to keep our students connected and to help them succeed and, and um, do well throughout both at our institution, but then wherever they go afterwards, whether it's to a career or to a four-year school. And so the idea of the culture of care is, I think it, in a lot of ways, what it represents is a mindset change. Okay. All right. Tell me a little bit about that mindset. Are there key elements or principles that you can share about that? So I think, I think the, the key thing, again, and I, I know it sounds so basic, right. but that our students are people and they live complicated lives right. and that they don't exist just as abstract students who come here and take classes and then go away. And that they're, those parts of their lives impact how they interact with us, how, the, how well they're able to do in school, mm -hmm. um, how they experience their classes, and that part of our role is to help them manage some of those difficulties and to try to help them in any way that we can. So if I, if I hear you correctly on that, that first uh, maybe main principle of students are humans is, is from a pedagogical standpoint, uh, seeing them as whole people. Right. Not just the, a, a pupil or a student, but as a person. Right. And so, so for me, I mean, that sort of, I, I tend to think about the culture of care, sort of the way I became involved in some of these conversations is talking about what I, um, the phrase that people use is the, the pedagogy of kindness. Okay. All right. Great. <laughs> and that's sort of a manifestation of the culture of care in the classroom. So, so part of the idea behind the, the pedagogy of kindness, the fundamental principle behind it is that, again, our students have complicated lives mm -hmm. and that our role is to help them achieve these learning outcomes right. and that navigating that can be complicated and that we don't want to be barriers in them achieving that. So there's so much in what you just shared, but one thing I want to ask as a follow-up question, and I might, I might phrase it this way, if you're talking about the pedagogy of kindness it almost infers uh, pedagogies that aren't kind, right? <laughs> and so the question I would ask is, let's say I'm a, a, a brilliant subject matter ask, expert, and, uh, but I'm new to teaching, and I come to you and I say, I've been hearing about this thing called the pedagogy of kindness. How can I put that into practice in my teaching? What would you share with me? So like, I, like actions or behaviors? So I would share at least one or two things. And Excellent. So I, I think the first thing is that no matter how expert you are in your subject matter, you have to think about your role as helping students learn that material. And so that rather than simply being a gatekeeper or a measurer, that of course we're gonna measure how the students achieve, right. but our focus is on helping them achieve. And that may seem like a really small, subtle difference, but it's actually a really big deal. Okay, then let's map it out. The, the distinction between helping them achieve and, and measuring whether they achieve. So in that sense, if, if I'm a subject matter expert, I'm going to get in the classroom and I'm going to talk about whatever it is that I'm an expert in. So yeah. for me, that's history. Right. And I'm going to talk about content, history. Content. And it's all going to be mm -hmm. content delivery and, you know, the, the worst nightmare of, I, I don't know what your experience of history classes were, but the, the nightmare of a history class is names and dates. Right? Right. right. And just sort of this long list of things. Things to memorize. That you have to memorize. Got it. And so part of the idea, and again, I would argue that good history teaching is not about memorization. And certainly at the college level, it's actually about thinking and asking questions and um, oftentimes challenging some of those things that, that we live in an era where the information 
is readily accessible all the time. Right. It used to be a really important skill to be able to, to know that information. Now it's more important to know how to access that information and then also how to think about it. So, so knowing what happened isn't really the crucial thing that I'm teaching. I'm teaching about why it happened and helping students think about both why it happened and why it mattered. So those higher order uh, things like analysis, synthesis, yes. critique, right? Right. So, so but if I'm, uh, let's say I understand that, but how, do I, how does one do that from a position of kindness? And so part of it is that, that, well, so part of it is what you said. We have to present the material slightly differently. Okay. Right? That you have to present the material. It's not just me sort of dumping information into them. Right. And then they deliver it back and I test right. whether or not the, they the get it. The banking model of education, <laughs> right. right? Right. And so I think you have to construct assignments that are a little bit different and that um, help let students show you what they've learned, right? And let them engage the material in slightly different ways. But when I think about the pedagogy of, uh, of kindness, the other thing I think about then is when you do measure, how do you do that? And is that essentially a form of punishment when students do that work. So you just sort of created a paradigm shift for me. So while you were talking, it seems like we almost have to do pedagogy of kindness in stereo. You have to do it sure. on the instructional or pedagogical side, but also on the assessment and measurement side. Yes. Like I can, I think we can all remember assessments that were unkind. Right. Right. So, I mean, the, the, the mind just races about how an assessment tool could be unkind. What, what kind of things would you tell me if I was that same person saying, I want to, in, I want to inject uh, the pedagogy of kindness into my quizzes and tests and assignments? What kind of advice would you give me? Well, so part of it is you have to, those so this is complicated because it depends on disciplines and different disciplines right, have right. different... That, isn't that the most <laughs> academic answer? It depends, yes, right? So it, it does depend. So tell but, me what it depends but I, upon. Well, I think it depends a lot on your discipline, but I think it... Uh, and what you're, what you're assessing the students being able to do. Right. But it turns out that at least in history, and I think it's true in many of the things we teach, mm -hmm. if, if what you want the students to give you is sort of the rote answer... Okay. Um, and I don't mean right answer. I mean like, oh, there is exactly, a word for word. Exactly it must be what exactly, I have provided, yeah. Then I think that's that's punishment. <laughs> that's, that's not really learning. It's like, oh, you sorry, you departed from this, you know, in this way. And that that's not, you know, that's not necessarily learning. And so so part of the pedagogy of kindness is giving students the space to learn it and think about it in ways that make sense to them, but also hopefully in ways that stick. You just made a light bulb go off in my head. So when you said that, I thought, wow, um, a, a pedagogy of kindness is not just a style. It's not just a method of delivery. It might require rethinking the whole enterprise of teaching. It, it does. And it, it really, but I'll tell you how this started for me. And, yeah, and I'd love to hear that. So in, it, in a weird way, it's not about anything we've talked about. And for me, it started with deadlines and that students come into class and they miss a test or they miss a paper and they they either want to make it up or they want an extension and i think early in my career i was a little bit tougher on this but almost immediately i realized that being tough on deadlines is actually not necessarily great teaching it sort of goes back to this idea of well i want the students to succeed and so 
if they're a few days late, they're they're still demonstrating whether or not they've learned that material. Right. Or you'll or you'll hear our colleagues say, well, they'll be expected to turn things in on time in the real world, and I'm just preparing them for what you know so, uh, the real world is like. Right. So in in my initial thinking about this, a lot of it was sort of almost anticipating those kinds of criticism just coming from myself. I was like, yes, yeah, students need the real world. And I'm like, well, but number one, they're not there yet. Yeah. Um, and and number two, and, and so they're still learning. And so we should help them with that. Yeah. I think the other thing is that um, in the real world, like if I'm sick, I don't have to come to work. <laughs> um, in the real world, there are extensions for projects. There is extensions. There's, you can take sick days, you know, there's vacation. There's all these things that we grant ourselves, and, and not every profession has those. Not every job has those. Right. But in most jobs, there are ways to, you know, someone used the example, well, you know, lawyers have to go to trial and, you know, you don't. And I'm like, well, there's things in law called continuances. <laughs> and so maybe in your class, don't call it an extension, call it an, a continuance, but create a way to let students, um, achieve those learning outcomes and learn the standards of your profession and your field at the same time because yeah, so they're I, they're not they're not opposed those yeah. are things that go together yeah i heard you kind of reframe the deadline question tw in two ways one is uh this is a safe learning space that is different from the real world but also there are analogs for more kind or caring ways of dealing with hard deadlines uh, you know of course, you know, a plane ticket is good for, you know, uh, one trip on a, on a plane that's going to take off, but people miss flights. And you know, they're, they're, they're just as you were talking, I was thinking just about every hard deadline yes. in the world, the, in the real world, there's some kind of exception to it. And sometimes there's a penalty, but it's not, it's not the, because one of the things that happens in most college classes is that if you miss a major assignment, you probably can't pass the class. Like if, if a student doesn't take the first test in my class, they basically can't pass that yeah, class. The math like it's is almost not impossible. There. Right, the math right, isn't right. there. And uh -huh. so okay. so when, when you're an instructor and you're saying, Oh, I'm sorry, this is just the real world, you're not just giving them a penalty on that assignment. The the penalty far outweighs the transgression that you're trying to address. So that seems to me to be a great way to describe this framework of culture of care or pedagogy of kindness is that's how it would be different. So uh, when I'm role-playing this teacher who asks you the question, I think I learned something. I think you, you would say, here's what you could do with your deadlines. Here's what you could do with some of your policies. Can you get a little more specific about that? Because, I mean, every, every course has assignments, projects, quizzes, tests. Right. Um, so if we're going to be kind about them, do, are there just no deadlines or how does that work? Well, so what I do, mm -hmm. and again, I think it does very disciplined. It varies and from so every discipline is going to have to situation. figure out how to do this. Okay, go ahead. But what I do is I tell students, and, and this is something that I changed actually very recently, is it used to be that if students came in and asked me for an extension, I said yes, and it was fine. And I thought that that was a, a good mechanism of dealing with this. But I realized, especially just you know, with our equity mindset that we've been trying to put in place here at LCC, I started thinking about it, and lots of students don't know you can ask for an extension. Exactly. <laughs> You've just privileged the folks who took the initiative to ask right. and, and, and didn't offer that opportunity to folks who, who didn't even occur to them. And lots of students have that mindset that you were talking about, that they're like, well, I have to meet the deadline, and if I don't, then it's my fault, or none of my other instructors would, you know, I just missed it, and so, you know, there's nothing I can do. And so one of the things I do is I put it in my syllabus and I put it on the assignments. Um, this is the deadline. It's definitely best to finish this when it's due. Right. 
if you need an extension, let me know. And one of the things that I found very interesting is that I've done this for most of my career in terms of giving students extensions. Right. What used to happen is I would get students who had major crises, um, significant problems, and they would oftentimes need really long extensions. And so when you were saying, does this go on forever? It's like, well, some of those students, I would give them that extension and a certain percentage of them would just never do it anyway. Yeah, that but would I'll, happen when I gave incompletes as yeah. well. You know? and, and part of that is that, the, and I think this is the students who are abusing it, they're the ones who don't complete it. Um, but what does happen is the students who have major problems, they, they are able to um, complete it because they have something they're trying to overcome. When I changed my approach and said, you know what, I'm going to tell students at the outset that they can have an extension if they need it. Number one, the number of requests I got went through the roof, and it was really stunning. That's fascinating. Oh, um, and, and it makes a ton of sense. It's very intuitive, yeah. right? <laughs> well, it's one of those things that it's obvious, yeah. until, except that it's not until you do it. Right. But what was crazy was that almost all of them were requests for like a day or two. Like, can I just have an extra day? Can I just have two days? Can I have a week? And oftentimes it would literally be things like... Um, I, I had to work an extra shift. Mm -hmm. um, I had to stay late at work. My kid got sick. And I don't need, you know, limitless time. I need a day. Well, and that makes sense given the uh, assignments we give. I mean, uh, while there are probably courses where there are week-long, you know, cumulative assignments, most most students would probably only need a day or two to yeah. do it, whether that whether it was now or a week from now. Right. And, and so part of what I say is that I, I want you to ask that you tell me you need the extension. Right. You don't have to tell me why you need it, but almost all of them do. And then when they say, I just need a day or two, I'm like, okay, then take a day or two. But if you need more time, let me know. And periodically, they still need more time. But I'm going to say 90% of the students who ask for a day or two, that work is in within a day or two. Well, I'm glad we did a deep dive on something specific like deadlines because it, to me that kind of gives some concrete examples about uh, culture of care or pedagogy of kindness in practice. Can you think of some others in the course of a, of a, of a, of a semester, uh, the ways that you would put that into practice? So this is something that, again, that I did just recently over the pandemic. I had time to reflect on my teaching during the pandemic. Good. So I've tried to put some things into practice. But I, I can think of two more quick examples. So one is quizzes. Um, I'm someone who I do weekly quizzes. And, you know, I always start out each class by saying that all our tests are going to be essay tests because history, as we talked about as a discipline, there's no A, B, or C answer to why there was a civil war right? It's complicated and you can't answer that in a multiple choice question. Right, right. All my quizzes are multiple choice. And my students are like, wait a minute, there's tension there. But it's really, I would just, mostly they're there to make sure they're doing the reading. And I think of the quizzes very much as teaching tools that, that I sometimes ask really hard questions. And the intent is for them, if they get it wrong, they're supposed to say, oh, well, why is this wrong? And then they can think about it and learn why they got it wrong. Okay. And one of the things that has happened, unsurprisingly, is that students argue that they get unhappy with that because it feels like, well, this is a really hard question and how am I supposed to know that? And, and my answer would always be, well, number one, the quizzes don't count for very much. And number two, this is a teaching tool. I want you to learn from this. Right. And they were like, well, great, but it, like, I feel like it's hurting my grade. And, and I realized it was creating this, even though it's not worth a huge amount. For the student, it matters a lot to yeah. get that really oh, low so grade. True. It is so true. And so I changed all my quizzes and I turned them into multiple attempts so that if you get it wrong, 
if I want you to learn from, if, if I'm saying, first of all, that this isn't that big a deal, then why am I making such a big deal out of it? <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> and then the other thing was, if I want it to be a teaching tool, I want it to be sort of a teachable moment for them, then let them learn and have it not penalize them. And so I change the way I do my quizzes. And so they can take them over. So they can take them over. And there's limits. I, I, I think I give them three attempts. Mm-hmm. And they're short quizzes, so most of the students get all of them. Then when they don't get all of them, they still get sort of mad because they're like, oh, I can't believe it. But it's no longer that I've somehow, they've had different options to do this and to try to learn. And, and uh, two things, they've kind of tapped into competing against themselves, right, yes. rather than against the test or you. But yes. the other thing that I thought of when you were talking about, and th- this is, I think, masterful on your part, is hearkening back to our conversation about the real world. There are tests in the world that are multiple attempt tests, right? How many stories have you heard about people taking the bar exam several times or taking the GRE or the SAT? There are that those are real world reattempts. And and most of the things that our students are going to do aren't going to be tests like that anyway. That's most true. of the things they're going to be, you know, there's there's no multiple choice job interviews. There's very few multiple choice jobs. And so um, so I, I think penalizing them in that way and letting them most of the time, if you make mistakes in your work, you have the opportunity to try to learn from that and improve. Oh, that's fascinating. So I have one more question for you before we wrap up, Jeff, and this is just fascinating. We've spent the entire time uh, talking about the classroom, talking about how it applies to, you know, quizzes and tests and daily teaching. My last question is, how would you see a culture of care or a pedagogy of kindness uh, being enacted outside of the classroom? So uh, you're very active and engaged institution-wide at our college. Beyond the classroom in student supports and how we structure the college, what does culture of care look like there? So I think that in a lot of ways, the pedagogy of kindness is really a reflection of the culture of care just in the classroom. Okay. And that, as you said, that we do a lot more than just in the classroom kind of things right. at LCC. And because I'm in a story and I'm going to do a little history, if that's okay. No, it's perfect. <laughs> um, and I think, and as you said, this is a trend within higher ed, but right. I think at LCC in particular, a number of years ago, and it was quite some time ago, so it wasn't recent. Um, they did a little bit of focus group work or whatever. And one of the things that students said is that they didn't really feel connected to LCC and that they didn't feel like they belonged. (laughs) And um, I think the college at that time said, well, what can we do about that? Like that's, that's, what can we do? That's what can you do? Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that uh, one of our, I think it was a former provost, but I can't remember who exactly started talking about this, but said, well, what if we just started being friendlier? Like, what if we smiled at people when we saw them on campus? And that we did that in a very intentional way, because most of us are just generally kind of friendly. Mm-hmm. And if you see a student, you sort of maybe notice them. Or, but why not, like, say hello? <laughs> why not smile? And, and honestly, um, one of the things that he used was an example of a support staff worker who had seen a student who was upset and rather than just sort of passing by, had stopped and asked them what was wrong and then had helped them. And that person, it wasn't their job to do this, but they did it because this person was a member, you know, the student is a member of our community, was having a hard time. Uh And what can I do as a member of the LCC community, someone who works at LCC and maybe can help them navigate this? And they found a solution to that student's problem. And so the idea was to try to be more intentional about doing things like that. Now, 
that makes it sound like, oh, we're just going to be smiley and friendly. And and I think that what it is, I'm going to go back to where we started. It's a mindset change. Right. What are we here for? And that our role is if, if we are more intentional, because again, I'm someone, I'm pretty friendly. You know, I smile a lot. Right. <laughs> but, but when I walk across campus, was I being active in that care for students? Now, that's a great observation because even if you are naturally friendly and smiling, if you're on your way to class, you're thinking, okay, what are we covering today? What's the plan? You've got a lot of things on your mind. Um, and I love your focus on intentionality. Right. But I also think it's really elegant the way you've brought the conversation back to where we started. It started with a simple principle where you said um, students are people. And, and they have uh, cares and needs outside of the classroom. And that's where we've ended is that, you know, even outside of the classroom, students are people. And we, if we sort of need to be attentive to their whole, their whole personhood. And, and if you bring that helper mentality mm -hmm. with that idea of their personhood, that sort of helper mentality, I, I think is what makes it so that instead of just um, putting the burden on the student to try to find what they need, right we give them what they need to achieve it themselves, right? And that our role is to, you know, I always think of Mr. Rogers, right? Look for the helpers. We have to be the helpers. And that that is, again, being intentional about that is how we best do that. And we, I think one of the things the culture of care means at LCC is we try to infuse being the helper into all of our interactions, uh, hopefully with our students, but also with each other. Well, Jeff, I can't think of a better way to end our conversation. Thank you so much for sharing about this. It's been a fascinating conversation for me. Well, thank you so much. I was happy to be here. Teachable Moment is recorded and produced by Steve Robinson on LCC's downtown campus. The soundtrack is licensed through DeWolf Music and was composed by John Rowcroft. Want more Teachable Moment? Visit lccconnect.org for more episodes. And if you have an idea you'd like to discuss with me on the show, send me an email at steve.robinson at lcc.edu. Until next time, keep learning. You're listening to LCC Connect on WLNZ Lansing, 89.7 FM. issues and topics that affect our lives from the local level to the world stage. Listen to the programs of LCC Connect anytime at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College is a proud collaborator of the Lansing Promise Scholarship, offering graduating high school seniors who live within the Lansing School District and attend a high school within district boundaries an opportunity to attend LCC. The scholarship offers 65 credits over the course of four years from high school graduation. For more information on the Lansing Promise Scholarship at LCC, please visit lcc.edu hope. This is WLNZ Lansing. You're listening to LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College.
To find out more about LCC Connect programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.